was just curious if anybody saw it, but I guess not. It was clear until I got out in the middle of nowhere, and then it was very cloudy, and so it was not helpful. Um, all right, so last week, we talked about worshiping God for who he is. Um, we tried to adjust the lens of our image of God, uh, because, like, if you've ever taken a, a photo with, like, a telephoto lens, like, you know you have to get that image in focus for it to come out right. And, and I think so often we worship God from a standpoint of, of a distorted image. And the image comes out uh, lacking or it comes out uh, somehow not the way that we intended it to. These guys, oh my goodness, that's terrifying. They, they, know that, they know how my brain will just like click on something. And so, all right, thanks guys. We talked about refocusing the lens. And we talked about uh, worshiping God for the God revealed in the Bible, not the old angry guy with the beard, not the removed guy, not the God that looks like the God in the mirror. Uh, what we saw last week was a God who comes near. This is what we just celebrated with communion, that God is not some disembodied spirit, that he actually came in flesh and blood. He actually came to be present with us, that he came into the middle of all of our chaos, all of our suffering, and he took that upon himself. This is the God that we worship. We don't have time to go through everything that we talked about last week, but I encourage you to listen to that because it's going to set the foundation for a lot of what we're going to do today. Uh, the truth of the matter is, that's only about half the truth. Uh, we have to recognize that our worship is not the only important thing when it comes to being Christians. There is something else, a, a major component that is, is basically married to our worship. The two go hand in hand. And so today, uh, we're going to talk about what that actually looks like. Um, the first thing we're going to do today is, gonna, I think we're going to try to expand a little bit of what, what worship actually is. I think sometimes we've confined it uh, too narrowly. And so we're going to have an opportunity to maybe expand our horizons. And I hope, my hope is that it will be freeing for a lot of us. Uh, because I ask you guys all the time, some of you guys just don't like to sing, right? And so if that's all that worship is, some of you guys are like, well, maybe I don't like to worship. But if worship is something much more profound, much more uh, broad than that, then I think, uh, I think it's going to be really freeing for a lot of us. That's the first thing that we're going to do. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to push a little bit. Um, and we will get there. But uh, to start today, we're going to go back to the beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 2. So I invite you to turn over to Genesis 2, uh, 8, starting in verse 8. All right, I'm going to read just a little bit here. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden from Eden, from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold, resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but do not, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. All right, Genesis 2, we are introduced for the first time to the, the creation created in God's image. We have that verse in Genesis 1, but for the first time we begin to see what the purpose of that creation is. 
um, in biblical interpretation, it's important to notice when we are first introduced to a character, because that's going to tell us a lot about what that character will do, the things that that character will be about. And so it says, the Lord God puts the man in the garden to, what, what's he supposed to do there? Work. Take care of it. And so the, fir- the first thing that we're told to do is to work. Oh, man. Unfortunate. In, in the garden, yes. Which is unfortunate for some of us. Uh, the Lord God puts the man in the garden to work and take care of it. And we're also told about the presence of, of, of different kinds of trees. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a bad tree. There's a tree of life, good tree. There's, there's other trees that are there, just trees that, are, that look nice. They're, they're pleasing to the eye. There's trees that are good for food. Um, this, if you were going to create a world that was static and unmoving, you wouldn't plant a garden. Am I right? Like, how many of you guys just don't have a green thumb? Like, your yard is trying to maybe take over your life. Um, the only thing I like about winter is that everything dies. I had to mow the lawn on Thursday. It was depressing. Um, because, uh, and I've told you guys this before, I, I had this, like, pergola thing in our backyard, and, and the guy before me was just a super stud, super green thumb. He built everything. We just live off of his good graces. And uh, he planted this vine that would form this canopy over this pergola, and it's fantastic. It's like this natural uh, shade, and it's really beautiful. But at the same time, the thing wants to eat my house, my dogs. Um, every time I go out there, it's just climbing up, like, towards my bedroom saying, I'm coming for you. And so, for me, uh, to look at the fact that God planted a garden, uh, to me, illustrates the kind of world that he wanted to create. He's not saying, like, like in Genesis 3, when it all goes wrong, God's not like, oh man, uh, they messed everything up. God is inviting us into this dynamic relationship with the potential for good, with the potential for bad. Just like a garden has the potential to grow food to provide, a garden also has the potential for weeds. A garden has the potential to go very wrong. And if you've been to my backyard, you know that. And so God plants a garden. This pushes against any idea that God wanted some static world. He's inviting us into a dynamic relationship. But you notice um, these two trees, the trees that are pleasing to the eye, the trees that are good for food. Here, even at the beginning, we have beauty. We have something to behold, something to worship God for. And we have provision. Some trees are good for uh, food. Now, we usually, when we think about this text and the text that follows it in Genesis 3, we usually focus on the negative. Don't eat from that tree. Just don't do it. That's, that's, that's what we focus on. And that, that's how we explain away the things that go on in the world. Well, they ate from the tree, and ever since then, everything's gone wrong. But I want you to notice that the garden is a place of permission. It's not a place, uh, there's one thing you're not supposed to do. God says, everything I have, everything I have made, I give to you. Just don't do this one thing. The Bible begins with an invitation, an invitation to right relationship, obedience, working, doing the things that he's asked us to do. It's called shalom, peace with the creator. And he puts us there to work and tend the garden. Notice there's no report of singing in the garden. So when we talk about worship just being songs, so we're, we're kind of in trouble at that point. But there is, there is worship, right? And there is work. So you're not going to get out of that anytime soon. May, may color what we think about when, when God puts all the gardens together in Revelation 21 and 22. Maybe it's not just going to be us floating on a cloud. Maybe there will still be adventures to be had. Uh, maybe there will still be dynamic things going on. You see, there's work in this garden. There's pulling weeds. 
There's picking fruit. There's making sure that, that trees are pruned and, and, and make sure that they are able to grow. The Lord God invites the man who worked the garden to organize it in such a way that it produces a harvest. In verse 12, it says some weird stuff about the geography of the land, right? And those of you guys who really like social studies or geography, you're like, Tigris and Euphrates, boom, Fertile Crescent, I know this, right? <laughs> the rest of you guys who are like math, you're just like, uh, what? This is not some map to the, the promised land, some Indiana Jones, go, go search this out. This is God telling us a little bit about the world that he has created. There's gold, there's onyx, there's this thing called aromatic resin, which we don't really know what it is. I guess it smells nice. But all of these things have to be explored, have to be excavated, have to be discovered. And so perhaps this is the kind of world that God is inviting us into. In verse 19, it says, the Lord brings the animals to the man to see what he would name them. Sounds cute enough. Sounds like something you do with your kids, right? Like, oh, what's he going to call this one? Uh, What's he going to call this one? Um, And, you know, this is usually where preachers talk about the demonic cat and that sort of thing. I'm going to leave that alone today um, because just because dogs are better doesn't mean. um, But perhaps from the very beginning, worship was not just about singing. Uh, Perhaps uh, the work of our hands, when they reflect a right relationship with God, are worship. And so this this, to me, opens up a whole new world of possibility. If, if we look at, at worship from the perspective of stewarding and distributing the things that God's good world has produced, then worship becomes, uh, then the things that we do become more than just a task. Teachers shaping and molding young minds, engineers building bridges and wells, uh, people in business using knowledge of supply chains and, and accounts uh, to make sure that, that, that things are distributed. Um, let's see, what else? Gardeners, yes, gardeners. Creating beauty for the eye and food for the hungry. Nurses caring for the wounded and weary. Counselors bringing peace to people's souls. Volunteers cleaning up after a night of messy students running around the auditorium. Perhaps these things are worship as well. And I hope that begins to open up our our possibilities here. Because again, if it's just about what we do here on Sunday morning, that's rather boring. I'm going to be honest. But... If this is a place where we gather to refresh, to remind ourselves that there is a center to the universe and that we are not it, and then to go out from this place and to bring this message to the world, then it becomes something completely different. Genesis 2.9 says, The Lord makes all kinds of trees grow, trees that are good for food, things that are just beautiful, things that are useful. All these sorts of things are growing in this garden. And so the garden is a place where worship and mission meet. The garden is a place where there's things that are just beautiful, things to be beheld. But it's also a place where God is saying, work this land, create, work, and and make sure that there is enough. Provide with what I have given you. And so worship and mission meet there. And so last week we talked about worship. We talked about worshiping God for who he is. And this week we have to see our response to the God revealed in Scripture. That it's not just about what we do here on a Sunday morning. That it's not just about some pious private morality. It is a world-changing truth. In Exodus 19, God will call the people of Israel and say that you are a nation of holy priests. And a priest is something that, that tells people what his God looks like, right? Like if you wanted to, especially you can talk about this from a Catholic standpoint. Like if you wanted to know what Catholics believe, it'd be, it'd be a good place to start to ask a priest. Find the guy with the collar on. Um, it's, it's very sad to me that I don't get to wear a collar every day. 
to walk around. People call me Reverend. Um, Exodus 19.5 says that we are a nation of holy priests. And so priests tell people, tell the world what their God looks like. Priests pray in the temple. They invite uh, the, the, the meeting of heaven and earth where they are. They offer sacrifices. Hebrews will say that Jesus is our high priest, our great high priest, that has offered the sacrifice once and for all. So there's no more need to offer sacrifices. But this opens up our task. If we are priests, and, and we don't get off the hook in the New Testament, Peter says the same thing. You are a nation of holy priests. So what does that look like? What does that mean? We talked last week about worshiping God for who he is. And we talked about how maybe we need to step into a broader picture of God revealed in Scripture. And this week, we have to talk about our response. And, and to start this week, we're going to start looking at what it looks like when we fail to respond in a way that is proper. Uh, turn over to Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to need our big boy pants on for this one. This is going to hurt a little bit. Isaiah 1. All right. Starting in verse 10. It says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's talking to the people of Israel here. This would have been what we call an insult. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. They're offering sacrifices in the temple and God is saying, okay. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread your eyes, when you spread your hands out in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. How did we get there? We, we, just, we were in the garden just a minute ago, and it seemed like everything was going quite well. We're walking, we see God face to face. He walks through the garden in the cool of the day. And now he's saying, when you pray, I'm not even going to listen. How did we get there? Um, th- there are things that will pull us away from our calling, that pull us away from the reality that God is inviting us into. And, and what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to lay out the case against the people of God, the people of Israel, saying, this is why. This is why I'm saying these things to you. And ultimately, this is why exile and judgment are going to come. And so if you turn over to Isaiah chapter 2, we'll look. I'm going to read a chunk here. So just uh, turn over there and follow along. I'm reading out of NIV here. We'll start in verse 6. It says, You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and clasp hands with pagans. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Do not forgive them. Verse 12, it says, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. And so God lays out his case. 
And I think we can see a couple things from this passage, a couple things that Isaiah is, is, is telling the people, that this is what God is saying. This is what is pulling you away from your calling. Look at uh, verse 6. It says, You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines. Now, the first thing I think we see in this passage, the first thing that's sort of pulling the people of Israel away from their calling is their trust in in sort of human reason, human wisdom. Um, In in this context uh, that Isaiah is writing in, the, the, the east is the seat of wisdom. It's, it's sort of like uh, saying that like you, you trust in gurus. Uh, you trust these things that aren't really God's wisdom. And so um, I think this works itself out in a couple of ways, right? This is a little bit what we talked about last week. We're worshiping a God that looks like us. Um, we, we trust more in the, in the sort of the ethos of the age, the way that we think now. Well, surely that can't be right, God, because look how far that we've come. Look how far that we have evolved. And this is uh, like Oprah Winfrey, Deepak Chopra, all that stuff is about discovering your true self. And if you, if you, the, the, the point to life is to find your true heart. But the Bible is going to push against that and say that you, you do, you follow the inclinations of your heart and your heart is evil. And so putting trust in the things that are uh, of, of man is the first thing that, the, that these people are doing. I think this works out in a second way. We have this sort of myth of progress, right? The, the idea that everything is always getting better. Um, and certainly, you can think of things like technology. Like, there are, there are things, like, that we use every day, uh, you know, our life as Americans. Um, you don't even have to know anything anymore, right? Like, how many of you talk to Google like it's a person? Like, Google, what should I have for dinner tonight? It, it'll answer you. Um, you know, we, we can search, we can find the answer to almost any question in, like, a matter of minutes, Right? And so we have this amazing technology. You don't have to know anybody's phone number. You don't have to know how to get anywhere. Again, I was in the middle of Hunterdon County, but I still had a cell signal, which was helpful. Um, otherwise, I might not be here this morning. But we, we have this amazing technology. You think about, we carry the Internet around in our pocket. But you think about, let's think about the Internet, for instance. The Internet has this great potential for this vast wealth of knowledge. But it also has this great potential for exploitation and abuse. Child pornography has become infinitely more profitable since the, the advent of the Internet. Think about the, the staggering statistics of men and women who are enslaved by addictions to pornography because it sits in their room. The Internet has this absolute potential for, for amazing good, but it also can go the other way. And so with all of our progress, everything that we create sort of carries with it this underlying, yeah, but, like GPS, like we can create this thing that could pinpoint where you are in all of the world. But you know what else you can do? You can press a button and wipe out the whole world. And so there's this myth of progress that things are getting better. Just this past year, a doctor in Philadelphia was convicted of of executing live babies. Guess it's getting better. 27 million people are in slavery right now. 27 million. 925 million people go to bed every night hungry. There's a guy named Scott Todd who wrote, uh, he works with Compassion. And he wrote a book called uh, 58. It's based on Isaiah 58. And what he's basically, his basic premise is that the earth produces enough food. That that God's good world, as he said, to steward it and to make sure that it takes care of those who who don't have enough. That God is doing his part. 
But the problem is the distribution. But again, it's getting better. We're getting smarter. We have evolved. It's 2013, right? And yet still these things go on. And so Isaiah is pushing against this idea that we can trust in human wisdom and human progress. He's saying, look to the Lord alone. The second thing I think we see in this passage is those who put their trust in human wealth and power. Guess what the weapons were in those days? If you look at uh, verse 8, actually verse 7, excuse me. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Human wealth, gold, treasures, human power, stuff that can blow stuff up. They got the chariots. They got the horses, right? And I don't think any of you guys are riding around in horses and chariots. That would be kind of interesting. Um, But what God is pointing out here is that the people of God in this passage are putting their trust in in basically defending themselves and security in walls. They're like, all right, God, if you're not going to take care of us, we'll take care of ourselves. And we can do it better than you can. They show us a mentality built on scarcity and fear. They show us a mentality that doesn't trust God as creator, as protector, as provider, and it seeks to build its own way. This is a mentality that spends billions of dollars on warfare. Life is kill or be killed. This is a mentality that results in a selfish heart, unwilling to give out of fear that if you give away, there won't be enough. And I think so many of us, if we were to peel back the layers of our own hearts, would see how we sort of live this out. This is the... The, the, the air that we breathe. We're not generous because we're worried that there won't be enough. We're scared to go to places that might be dangerous, even if Christ is calling us there, because we don't trust that God can provide. Instead, we spend our time building hedges against trusting God. Well, if I save up this amount of money, then I don't have to rely on God. When, As Nancy said, that everything we have is from him. We, we build hedges against emptiness, as, as Volf says. We, we fill our lives with this busyness, uh, constantly running here and there, and wonder why we just feel so frantic and erratic. We fill our lives with self-serving activities. We build walls and securities. And, and, and here's the result. And this is what Isaiah is going to uh, point out. If you look in verse 17. It says, learn to do right, of, of chapter 1, excuse me, Isaiah 1, 17, sorry. Learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are, though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God prescribes the remedy. And here's the problem. All of our trusting in things that aren't God, all of our worshiping, as Isaiah 2 says, the things our hands have made, all of our our sort of working and striving after things that that are trying to remove God, trying to remove uh, our need of Him, they make us numb. Like, we're just numb, right? And even though our world is more connected, even though we know you know, really what's going on in the world. We know what's going on on the other side of the world because we have uh, these great technologies that actually bring that information to us. 
We just try to forget that. Oh, I don't want to think about those things happening in the world. And, and we remove ourselves with, you know, gated neighborhoods and, you know, try to remove ourselves from the pain and the problems of this world. But Christ, the God that we worship, the God that we saw last week, is the one who comes into the middle of that. And you, you want to know what the prescription is here in Isaiah? He says, stop Stop being numb. Stop removing yourself. Stop offering this right kind of worship and then uh, trying to forget everything that's going on around you. He says, learn to do right. And this isn't about, this isn't about striving. Um, wh- what this is, uh, you know, for, for example, in my life, um, I've had the opportunity to go to Haiti uh, quite a few times. Uh, very, very um, instructive for me. You know, it's, it's funny. When you think you're going somewhere to teach and to help, you actually get taught and helped, and you probably do very little of, of, of that yourself. And so we, were, we go on these visits in the afternoon. Ed's got this incredible ministry. If you get a chance to go, just go down and see what he's doing, because it will ignite your heart, not just for the people of Haiti, but for the people that you walk around every day. But Ed's got this incredible ministry. Uh, he goes and he just hangs out with people. I mean, that's really what he does. And, and he has this amazing ability connect, to connect with people very quickly. And what we get to do in the afternoons when we go there is we just get to walk around and visit people at their houses. And one day we were walking, and, and seriously, there's like a billion kids in Haiti. Like, I don't even know where they come from, but you've been walking down like a path that doesn't look like it goes anywhere, and all of a sudden there's just kids like flocking to you. And some of them have clothes on, some of them you're like, okay, all right, cool. Um, put some pants on, bro. Um, because they, they wear these really nice school uniforms, and they change, and then they're just walking around with it all, uh, hanging out. But the amazing thing is, as we walk, people just come. And so one day we were walking, and we, we like, walked through this uh, area, and it really started to pour. Like, storms can just happen there. Like, they just materialize. And it just started pouring, and there was this tarp, and we, we stood under this tarp. And, and one of the, the Haitian translators we were there with, Pierre, just started to preach. He just started to tell the kids about how much Jesus loves them, how much he's there for them. And, and we're sitting there, and I'm kind of standing on the outside of this. You know, I don't speak Creole, so I'm kind of just trying to nod and take it in. And it's pouring rain. <laughs> and the mud is kind of, like, bouncing up on my shoes, kind of getting on my shoes. And I'm holding this kid's hand, and he bends down, and he starts to wipe off my shoes. Come on. And, and, and you want to talk about breaking through the numbness? You want to talk about getting rid of your stubborn, stone-cold heart? <laughs> you know, God is showing me in this, this moment what Jesus did for us, that he's literally washing my feet. And I'm like, dude, like those, I'm wearing like my third pair of Nikes. You know, I didn't bring the nice ones. I brought the ones that I have that, don't really, that I don't really care about, that I mow the grass in. And this kid is wiping my shoes. This kid with no shoes on, I can't remember if he had pants on, you want to get through the numbness? Put yourself in places that are not comfortable. Remove yourself from your daily routine, from your daily pattern. And I promise you, not only will God break through the numbness, but he is going to show himself to you. And you're going to learn a lot more than you ever would have thought. We have to break through the numbness. The church's purpose is twofold. Last week we talked about experiencing God for who he is. But that's not all. This is what's happening in Isaiah, right? They're worshiping properly. God is saying, look, if I wanted bulls, if I wanted rams, I wouldn't ask you. I got those. What he's saying is, worship that doesn't result 
and our lives being poured out as Jesus was, is nothing to you. He even says he hates you. So the church's purpose, our purpose here is twofold, to experience God's love, to respond in worship, and to carry that experience to the world. You could say worship and mission, these are our purposes, or you could say it as Jesus did, love God and love your neighbor. The people in Isaiah 1 are worshiping properly, but God says, okay, that's not all we need here. We worship a God who came to the poor and the broken and the outcast, who came into the middle of the suffering to bring healing and redemption. And when we fail to do the same, we go numb. We, we chase after things that aren't God. We chase after idols that our hands have made. If you read like Isaiah 44, he, he, he has this great passage. I can't read the whole thing to you right now, but I encourage you to read that. About the, the, just the ludicrous nature of worshiping something that you just made. We go numb when we worship a God that doesn't look like the God revealed in Scripture. And here's what God is saying in Isaiah 1. You can't have proper worship in the temple unless that worship floods out into the streets. Turn over to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Verse 3 this is the famous section of Scripture. I'm going to kind of pick and choose that. We're not going to unpack all of these individually, but we're going to take them as a whole. And this famous of Scripture is not uh, a list of regulations. Let's read a little bit of it. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, this isn't a list of things that we just, like, pick up and do. Like, the, the Ten Commandments, in some ways, we can kind of look at and be like, okay, I cannot kill people. I might be tempted sometimes, driving around, but I can avoid that, I think. Um, you know, I cannot bear false witness, or at least not, you know, I don't want to let anybody know about. But then we have this list in the middle of Jesus' ministry, and it's interesting, it's on a mountain, because when Moses and the people of God were given the covenant, Originally, after being removed from slavery in Israel, they go up on a mountain, and God gives his law, and, and it would seem here that we have a new law. It says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, how do you become poor in spirit? Like, does that just mean, like, you're constantly, like, like bemoaning, like, oh, I'm so, so humble, so poor in spirit. Um, nobody really likes those kinds of people. Um, so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, you want to know what a Christ follower looks like? You want to know what the coming of the kingdom looks like? It looks like these things. Uh, they are poor in spirit. They mourn. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like, like, think about that. Hungry and thirsting. Seeing the injustice in the world. Hearing the fact that there's 27 million people um, in slavery today. And saying, God, no. No. That's not how it should be. Hungry and thirsting. Like we hunger and thirst for food. This song that we sang uh, that Chris led. Come like you promised. God, come. 
come, come break the cycles of, and systems of sin and death. Jesus is not inviting us here in the Beatitudes into some sort of private and pious morality that sort of removes us from the world. He's saying this is who you are to be. In the next section, he'll say that you are the light of the world. But what I think happens in this, especially in this list, um, is, is, is kind of what happens when I watch LeBron James play basketball. Like, if I quit my job and spent 18 hours a day playing basketball, I might get better. I think I would. I hope so. But I still couldn't do the things LeBron James could do. Let's be honest. Dude is 6'8", 280, runs like crazy, can jump like unbelievably high. Like, there are problems with that. It's not going to happen for me. And I think sometimes we read this list and we think, well, that's, that's oh, good for the poor in spirit. But Jesus is saying that these are the things that, 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 the, that the people of God, the people in the kingdom of God, look like. Jesus isn't leaving this open-ended. He's not saying, it'd be really nice if you did this. He's saying, this is who we are to be in the world. And the challenge that is left to the church, and this is the hard part, and this is the part we're not going to really cover today, is translation. Jesus is saying, here's who you are. Now take that message and, and show the world that's who you are. He's saying, you translate it to your world. And he's inviting us into that today, to be a church who, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And we have to answer the question, what does that look like? It looks like going into places that are, that are broken and suffering. And, and guess what? We have a city that is literally four miles from our front door that is broken. And it is crying out for churches and people to say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. What could the church do, not just say, to make the poor in spirit believe that? Blessed are the mourners, for they will be comforted. How will the mourners believe that if we are not God's agent in bringing comfort? Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. How will the, the meek ever believe such nonsense when it looks like power and striving after power always wins the day? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. How will people believe that in a world where mercy is weakness unless we visit the prisoner and welcome the prodigal? Blessed are the pure in heart. How will people believe that when, when impurity and, and, and going uh, and enslaving people in all sorts of things is big business? It pays, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. How will we ever learn that in a world where war in one country means business for another? God is inviting us to take this message that he, he's given us on, on this mountain and to translate it to the world. This is our task. There's, there's no map. It doesn't just say, okay, if you do these things. I mean, it says sort of the goal, but, but that's the beauty of it. And this goes back to the garden, is that God is inviting us to, to find the things that make us tick, to find the creativity, to find the organizing, to find those things and to say, yes, God, we will be those sorts of people that make you known in the world. By living out your kingdom. This sermon was preached on a mountain somewhere in the middle of Jesus' ministry. But it was lived out. Jesus didn't, didn't, didn't just say, hey, you guys do these things and we'll, we'll check back later and we'll see how it's going. Everything that Jesus said, you do this, he did. 
And so he preached this message, and then he lived it out on another mountain, another hill in Calvary. Paul says in Colossians 2 that he nailed the authorities and the powers of this world to the cross, that he made a public display of them. And if you think about it, we just celebrated Good Friday, and the people were taunting Jesus, and they were saying, if he's the Son of God, then come down from the cross. And Paul is saying that Jesus did exactly that to these systems of injustice and brokenness in the world. And Jesus says, if you're so tough, come down. Jesus crucified, put to death, the world that is passing away, the world that is marked by injustice and fear and greed, Jesus put them to death. And, and here's what I know. I know that today I might be able to hold your attention, maybe not. I might be able to even get you to a place where you're like, yeah, yeah, we got to do something about this. But ultimately, this is a moment in time that is merely words. Um, I, Paul says, basically, I can speak in tongues of angels. I can know all the mysteries of our faith. But if I don't have love, if I don't live this out, then ultimately I'm nothing. I'm keenly aware of the limitations of this time here. But I think, too, that God can start a spark, that God can begin to break through the numbness even uh, this morning. Um, The fact remains, I can't remove your heart, but I think that God's spirit working in this place can. And as we saw with the people of God in Isaiah when you sort of miss the picture, when you, when, you only tr- when you try to isolate these things, when you try to say, okay, well, we worship in church, and then we, uh, we come back next week, and we try to do it all over again. When you isolate these instances in your life, that we go numb, and that we miss half the, the purpose, really, and that's what's going on in Isaiah. They're still showing up to the temple every week, right? They're still marking the attendance box. But God is saying, I will not listen to you when you pray. Guys, that's scary. I'm just going to say that. And so our response here this morning, how do we respond? Well, we have, to, we have to start where we did last week. We have to see God for who he is. We have to see his heart beating in his son, Jesus. We have to begin to see that the problems of this world are not somebody else's problems. They're the church's problems. That, that, that we begin to address and to work towards uh, living out a reality where the poor in spirit actually believe that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, Christ has made a spectacle. He's made a show of all these things. And I think, I think there's sort of two camps of people in this. I think there's those of us who have been at this for a while, and we just, we just kind of go numb, like the people in Isaiah, right? Like we just kind of forget that God is inviting us into so much more, and we sort of get caught up in our own thing and doing our own thing. And then we, if, we, if we sort of step back and we see that actually we're worshiping a God that looks a lot like us, and I think, so for, for those of you who are here every week, who are members of this church, maybe what God is asking us to do is just to repent and say, all right, God, I've been stuck in my own way. I've been spinning my wheels, doing my own thing for so long. Come, come break through this numbness. And so maybe that's our, our, our sort of landing spot here today. For, for those of you, others of you, I think that, that we, you may not just know that God is inviting you into something like this. Like, you may think that Christians are kind of weirdly moral and, like, they do uh, things that, you know, they don't seem like they have any fun. It seems like God is, is holding all the fun stuff over their head and saying, if you do this, I will curse you. But perhaps God is inviting you into a world-changing relationship where you, you actually get peace for your souls, where he actually tells you how much he gave for you in sending his son to the cross 
but then inviting you into a whole new reality. And so I think there's, you know, just a broadly divided, there's two tents here today. And so I'm going to pray and just ask that God would begin through his spirit, we believe speaks because he's living and alive today, begin to, to, to mold our hearts to look more like his. And guys, if you don't know that this Jesus is for you, that he loves you, that he, he came into the middle of the suffering, he didn't just say, okay, church, you guys go out and do this, but he came himself. And this is what we talked about last week. I hope that you'll see him for who he is today. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. Lord, you're good in, in ways that you show us your great love for us. God, but you're also good uh, in ways that we wouldn't normally think of. Lord, you're good in that you call us to correction. Lord, that you, you encourage us and challenge us even when we're going the wrong way. Lord, you don't let us run uh, so far off that you can't come find us. And so, God, for, for a lot of us in here, I think you're coming to find us here today. Lord, there's some of us in here that have just kind of felt like, is this it? I, I mean, I'm a Christian, but is this all that it is? And Lord, I pray that you're breaking through some of that numbness today. And Lord, for others of us in here, Lord, I know there's, there, there's just some of us that don't know any peace, that don't know uh, that there is a loving God who shaped them with his hands, who molded them to reflect his image in the world. And so, God, I pray that your spirit can speak here this morning. God, that we won't let your words fall on deaf ears or bad soil, God, but that we will hear uh, the words of your prophet and Isaiah, the words that you've communicated to us here this morning. God, and that we would respond in obedience. God, help us to worship you for who you are, Lord. Lord, we are free in your name, and we are free to, to, to approach these systems of, of death and sin and injustice, God, in your name. Lord God, we love you. We ask that you would be here this morning. Join in with me. One of the difficulties of speaking when you do it all the time, and even when you have an opportunity to, like Ian did today, 